We asked you to submit the best objections to objectivism you've heard. Today, we'll examine objections related to the is-ought gap, the defensibility of free will, and the possibility of formulating objective standards of value. We'll also look at the analytic methodology of giving counterexamples. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Mike Mazza, Associate Fellow at ARI, and with me today is Fellow and Director of Content, Ben Bayer. Hi, Ben. Hi, Mike. Today, I think, before we actually delve into the, the different objections that we got and the, the answers that we're going to give to them uh, in defense of objectivism, I thought it would be a good idea to start by sharing an announcement. Usually, we share our announcements at the end, but this one's uh, sufficiently exciting that I want people to hear about it up front. And that is about Ayn Rand Institute's series of reading groups. This is a program we've been sponsoring now for, uh, I think, over a year. We're only really starting to publicize it now. They've been very successful. Uh, registrations now open for a, the latest round of uh, Ayn Rand nonfiction reading groups. This is going to start the week of March 26th. It's going to focus on uh, nonfiction books like The Virtue of Selfishness, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, The Romantic Manifesto, Philosophy Who Needs It. It's going to give you the chance to explore the ideas behind Ayn Rand's fiction, uh, such as The Fountainhead, Matt, and The Shrugged. Uh, these are groups that are geared toward students and young adults who are new to Ayn Rand's nonfiction and who want to explore the philosophy behind the novels uh, for the first time in an in-depth way in a group setting online. Uh, very often, people who sign up for the groups, this is a great way for them to see what it's like to talk about ideas with other people. It's a great stepping stone then to eventually enrolling in the Ayn Rand University. So if you want to learn more about these, sign up, uh, you can go to this link, bit.ly slash readinggroups0323, and you will be able to sign up and hopefully we'll, we'll see you in just a few weeks. So Mike, uh, before we go into the actual objections that we got, um, maybe we should talk a little bit first about uh, why we're doing an episode like this, why we think it's important to consider uh, objections and not just uh, for the sake of answering them uh, to, to defend our philosophy. I think there's, there's more behind our motivation than that. Do you wanna say something about that? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of reasons why it's important um, to think about objections, potential objections, whether you hear them from somebody else or whether you formulate them on your own. Um, part of reaching certainty in abstract knowledge is looking for counter evidence, alternative ways of processing the evidence, um, alternative theories. Uh, philosophy um, offers very abstract theories of human nature, um, how human beings should best organize their societies, how they should best live their lives. This is none of this is uh, some things in philosophy are self-evident, but a lot of the substance of philosophy is not. Um, <clears throat> and a good objection can help you uh, help you go through this process. It might point you to some important fact you hadn't considered that you need to think. Well, does this fact undermine my theory? Does it reinforce it in some subtle way? I'm not seeing. Um, so a good objection can help you do that. They also, uh, good objections also help you make explicit um, some assumptions that you might 
might not recognize you're holding. So when you come into dialogue with another philosophy that's just at the most at the deepest level just has a different way of looking at things um you it might help you to bring out and and clarify the the, the deeper uh um, assumptions of your own uh worldview uh another valuable part uh of of considering an objection is at least good objections will test your level of understanding so if your position really is true then objections will have answers do you know what they are? Can you, or can you figure them out? Or if you can't, um, do you know someone who can, and can you understand what they're teaching you um, in answering the objection? And then <clears throat> the, the last one's less, um, you know, personal, your own understanding, um, and is, is more uh, towards the uh, advocacy side. Any new knowledge and uh, objectivism or a controversial philosophy, philosophy you know, this is more universal than just objections to objectivism, any new knowledge will and should come under severe scrutiny. Um, and it's if, if the knowledge is knowledge and you know it, and you're trying to advocate it, trying to get other people on board, convince them that it would benefit them to change their mind, it's your job as an advocate of the new to know how to defend it. But Ben, I think you had a few things to add. Yeah, I mean, that's all, of course, on the assumption that it is knowledge and that the position you're considering objections to actually is true. But if you're exploring a complex philosophical system like objectivism for the first time, I mean, for all you know, it might not be. And part of the reason to look at objections is to see if you think it really is true. And this is, this is something that I certainly did when I first started exploring objectivist ideas. The, uh, I started by reading the novels and then I read a few of the nonfiction books. And then as soon as I had access to it when I was in college, I went off to the university library and I, I looked up all the books I could find that were critical of objectivism. Now in the early to mid nineties, there weren't that many, uh, but I, I, I read all the ones I could get my hand on and my hands on. And I, uh, in some cases I, I thought I could answer the criticisms that I read. In some cases, I couldn't. And so I decided I, I didn't agree with objectivism until I could actually answer those objections. I, eventually, I mean, I, I worked for the Ayn Rand Institute. I, eventually, I decided that I could. Um, one other thing to mention is, so you, you talked about the value and the function of good objections. And uh, there is a difference between good objections and bad objections. Uh, and it's, it's not just the difference, uh, it's not just a question of whether ultimately we think they're right. Uh, I mean, if we think we can answer a good objection, we don't think it's right, but there can still be a good objection that's better than a bad objection where a bad objection is based on misrepresentation of the ideas that it's criticizing, straw manning those ideas. And so when we, the, the objections that we're going to look at today are not like that. They're not based on obvious crude caricatures of Ayn Rand's philosophy. There's plenty of those out there, uh, more than I'd, I'd like to uh, admit. And uh, mm. they're not worth paying attention to until you get to the point of, you know, perhaps realizing there's certain patterns in the various kinds of misrepresentations that reveal certain kinds of false premises that people are assuming even in the act of interpreting the philosophy. But for the most part, we're not going to look at those kinds of uh, uh, misrepresentations today. I think all of the objections we're looking at today are ones where the person making the objection is doing their level best uh, to try to understand the philosophy, grapple with it, and register a criticism uh, of it. So 
any, anything you want to add to that, Mike, before we go to the first one? No, I, I think I think that's enough for now. I think we'll, we'll bring out some more points about the value of objective objections as we discuss some of the actual objections. So. Great. Okay, so we've got four we're going to go through today, hopefully, <clears throat> if we have time. Uh, maybe we'll only do three, we'll see. But uh, the first of them is a an objection that we got from uh, someone named Sean. And I think Sean told us that he... Uh, is no longer an objectivist. And this was one of the objections that moved him uh, away from it, made him think that it was an incorrect philosophy. Uh, so he, he says that Ayn Rand's argument for egoism is a non sequitur. And here I'm just reading from his uh, submission. The fact that living organisms seek things for the sake of survival is cited as the reason humans ought to do so, which is a blatant example of the is-ought problem. She makes a similar non sequitur, he says, from life is the correct moral end uh, to a life appropriate to a rational being, which shows the insertion of her own personal ideals, prejudices, et cetera, into what the alleged objective good life should be. Furthermore, and I'll, we'll try to cover most, but not all of these parts of the question, the factual claim itself fails under scrutiny. Uh, organisms ultimately seek out what they seek out because the, uh, the genes that encourage that behavior replicate more. Natural selection occurs at the level of genes and organisms often engage in self-destructive behavior, dying to protect their young, dying as a part of the reproduction process, et cetera, because the behavior still propagates genes. She pinned her starting principle on an anecdotal empirical observation that has since been refuted by biological study. Okay, so uh, summed up, uh, uh, summing up the, the main part that we're going to comment on that was the first thing that he mentioned, organisms surviving, the fact that organisms survive pursue their survival doesn't justify what human beings ought to do. Uh, I'll say a word first about why there's something, uh, what's good about this objection, what at least makes it persuasive. Uh, one is the fact that it's, de it's definitely grappling with important elements of the actual argument that Ayn Rand gives in her essay, The Objectivist Ethics. Uh, and there, are, I think, are even certain ways of reading what she says, at least in isolation from other things she writes, that makes it sound like she is giving an argument like that, like living organisms pursue their self-interest, therefore human beings ought to do it as well. And I think that the person making this objection is also concerned with evaluating the logic of an argument like that, uh, especially through the lens of uh, major different historical philosophical problems, if, if major historical objections to certain philosophic viewpoints that have been reg registered. He mentions the is-ought problem as something coming from uh, the philosopher David Hume. And in the course of then trying to evaluate the logic of that argument, he's also trying to uh, integrate his understanding of the argument with, with something like our scientific knowledge. Uh, that's the reference to uh, facts about biology, genetics, natural selection, etc. I think that if the argument were uh, as simple as he's putting it, as the fact that living organisms seek things for the sake of survival, therefore human beings ought to do so as well, if that were simply all Ayn Rand were saying, uh, it, it would be a pretty bad argument. Uh, and I, I've, he, Sean is not the first person I've heard make this objection. And uh, so this is part of, the reason that, part of the reason that we are addressing it today. And like I said, I think there are certain ways of reading the essay that suggest that she's saying that, especially if you confine yourself only to a certain small number of pages. 
But you have to look at the wider context of the essay. And I think when you do, you realize that is, that is not what she's saying. Um, Ayn Rand is not making what uh, Greg Salmieri often calls the, uh, the Cole Porter argument, which if you know his song, uh, Let's Fall in Love, you'd, you'd uh, uh, parody it by saying, birds do it, bees do it, even educated fleas do it, let's do it, let's pursue our rational self-interest. Uh, that, that's not the argument. It's a pretty, that's a simple argument. It's a fallacious argument for the reasons that Sean mentions. Uh, it's not what she's actually saying. So what is she actually saying? Well, she does talk about the way in which living organisms uh, act in order to uh, achieve their survival. That there's a definite course of action that they need to pursue in order to live. Uh, what is she doing with that kind of observation? Well, she's, she's first and foremost, I think, making the observation that, look, there's a, there's a big and observable difference between living organisms and inanimate objects. Uh, the way that I often like to summarize the results of uh, this data is as follows. Take a cat and a plant and a rock and take the first two, put them in a safe, um, lock it for a few weeks and see what happens. Uh, there'll have been a dramatic change in the state of the cat and the plant, very little change um, in the rock. The cat and plant will have died, started to decay, stink, um, rock will be pretty much the same. And that's because there's a really big difference in what these types of entities need to do in order to remain in existence as the kinds of things that they are. Uh, to remain as they are, plants and cats, they need to act in the world in an unimpeded way in order to take in nutrients, nutrition, resources from their environment. Uh, that's what living things do to maintain that homeostatic state. Whereas to maintain its state, a rock basically just needs to be protected from external forces, in which case putting it in the safe is actually, uh, <laughs> is actually going to result in its continued existence, not so much the cat and the plant. We need some kind of concept to denote the difference that it makes for living creatures to actually be able to act to get the kind of things that they need to stay in existence when they follow that definite path and are able to acquire the things they need to remain in existence, that's not just any old regular effect of a certain kind of cause. That is a very special kind of effect of a very special kind of cause. And so we need some concept to denote the difference that that action makes to them. Um, we have this concept in, in English uh, and equivalence in many other languages, uh, the concept of a goal uh, that I think sets it apart from just any old effect. You achieve a goal, and we, and we say, when we say you achieve a goal, we do something that is good. So uh, that is the main point of making her observations that she does about living organisms and how they differ from inanimate objects. That is to show us what it is uh, to uh, achieve a goal is to do something that is good for the organism. But to get to the still further point about what human beings ought to do, she makes a whole raft of, of new observations, setting up all kinds of intermediate premises that lead to the eventual conclusion she's drawing about ethics. Uh, she observes, for example, that different organisms uh, need to do different things if they're to stay alive, that their own particular life serves as the standard of value for them. 
that for those living organisms that have consciousness, that's their basic means of survival. That for human beings, our form of consciousness is a rational conceptual consciousness. That conceptual consciousness has a particular nature, that it operates only by choice, uh, by volition. And so if we choose to live, we need to choose to identify and then act on the values that we need to stay alive. There's all kinds of choices that need to be made. And so that's when you get to the point of, look, a moral code is a code of a very special kind of value, moral values, the kinds that relate to human choices, the ones that guide the things that we ought to choose if we want to stay in existence. And uh, for a rational being who survives by reason, it has to be a code of values informing us about the requirements of the existence of a rational being. Uh, so there's a whole lot more that goes into her argument than that. It's not a simple... Uh, other living things pursue their survival, therefore we ought to as well, to inform the whole idea of what uh, it means to say we ought to do something, uh, that there are certain choices we have to make, requires a whole set of other observations about human nature and the human mode of survival and the fact of human choice that Sean's just not mentioning in this his reconstruction of the argument here, and it makes a big difference uh, for how to evaluate that argument. I'll say briefly, that uh, the second non sequitur that Sean mentions, the one about going uh, from the life uh, qua life to life qua rational being, which he says is a non sequitur. This is actually a question we answered in a previous version of this uh, podcast. Uh, and if uh, you go uh, back to July 2022, uh, if you go to bit.ly slash is ought QA, That'll take you to the timestamp in that previous Q&A episode where I, answer, I answered pretty much a version of this question. Um, long story short, there is a false split being made here between the existence of an entity and uh, the quality of its life. You can't really separate them in the way that this objection presupposes. But there's a lot more to say about that. I already said a lot of it. Mike, do you want to make any further comments on Sean's yeah. Objective. I had, I had one point I wanted to make uh, about what Sean was saying. So in the second segment of his objection, he mentions, um, he makes the claim that some empirical observations have been refuted by biological study, uh, in particular, that organisms ultimately seek out what they seek out because the genes that encourage their behavior replicate more. Um, <clears throat> so there's a sort of uh, like a genre of, <clears throat> sorry, I'm dealing with some allergies, a genre of objections to objectivism that notice that something in an objectivist claim or theory seems to contradict or conflict with a, uh, a claim made by a, a scientific theory. And so it's, I think it's important if you think that that's going on, if you're familiar with some findings in the sciences and you see that there doesn't seem to be a compatibility between what objectivism is saying and what these sciences are saying, it's important to, uh, to, to note that and see that there's a potential concern or problem here. But <clears throat> more often than not, I've found that when these, um, when these objections are raised, it's always from the perspective of a not a I wouldn't call it a scientific finding, but a um, 
controversial uh, scientific hypothesis. So the what Sean is saying about organisms doing what they seek out because the genes seek out um, beha behavior that will replicate them, that's um, the view of uh, natural selection of the gene-centered view of evolution. And it's not a consensus view amongst biologists. It's not, I wouldn't call it a, an established piece of science. It's got competitor views. So the gene-centered view of evolution is most in the popular mind associated with Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, I think. But there are equally prominent biologists who are critical of that and have alternative kin selection, multi-level selection, um, just to, to name some alternative hypotheses. So it, it's if you're going to <clears throat> take the the a, a scientific claim as potentially um, conflicting with objectivism, and then or any philosophy, and then wondering what, what to, how to process that, you have to be you know cognizant of is this something that um, the relevant experts would consider proven or is this something that the relevant experts would say, well, this is a likely hypothesis, but you know, there are other <clears throat> equally likely hypotheses being, um, being offered. And this goes uh, you know, doubly so the closer you get to uh, the human sciences, psychology, cognitive science, sociology. That's more often where these sorts of objections come from because they're uh, you know, their, their claims are closer in, in um, subject and content to claims made by a philosophy. And when you're dealing with an objection from the, you know, there's this finding about emotions and cognitive science, blah, blah, blah. Um, <clears throat> that's not something to just out of hand dismiss. But at the same time, you can't, uh, it's, it's a fantasy to think that those theories are established scientific fact. They all have competitors and there's little warring groups of academics who, you know, think each other's theories are, um, are, are, are bogus or wrong or have been refuted. And to sort that all out, you just have to be an expert in those fields. So, um, you know, on top of that, when you're dealing with the human sciences, it's even more fantastic to assume that those theories and methods don't have really deep substantive philosophical assumptions as part of their content. And yeah, Mike, one other thing I would, I would add to that is that, like, even if it were true, the Dawkins theory about uh, uh, natural selection operating on the genetic level, I, I don't think that necessarily contradicts anything that Rand is saying. There's still, regardless of how you, how it might be reduced to genetic selection, a straightforward, obvious sense in which the structures and behaviors of living things are for the sake of their survival. Uh, I mean, a, why does a heart pump blood in order to uh, circulate to the body that needs it to metabolize, that needs it in order to remain in existence as a certain kind of entity? And maybe there's some way of reducing that to some micro level language. Um, but I don't think by reducing it, you eliminate the fact. Right. Uh, it's like my, my point is that in order to make that judgment, you really need to know what is the theory actually claiming. And part of that is knowing what the evidence in its favor is and how, how strong it is. And if you're not really in the position to say, I understand the evidence in favor of this theory and it's, you know, I know that it's probably true, so then, then you can start to say, okay, so what is that? 
have to, how, how does that relate to these philosophical claims I'm bringing into question? Then you can do that. But before you've reached that point, there's really, there, it's just a big like promissory note for yourself. Like maybe someday if I look into this, I can form a judgment on it. But when you're dealing with controversial science, you have to essentially be an expert or near expert. Um, to do that. And you know, for all we know, we don't know who Sean is, so maybe he is, and this has a different epistemic status in his mind than it does in, in mine. I'm not really an expert in um, <clears throat> which of these theories might be better supported. I'm just aware of the that there is a controversy. So I think the, did you have, do, we do have a resource we wanted to share related to this last point, I think. So <clears throat> someone who does know this material quite well and has developed his own uh, views on some of the relevant biology is philosopher Harry Binswanger, who's a, for those of you who don't know, is a object, prominent objectivist philosopher and was an associate of Ayn Rand. And we wanted to recommend his, um, I believe it's a paper or, or essay, uh, Life-Based Teleology and the Foundations of Ethics. So for those of you who are interested yeah, in- Yeah, there's a pamphlet version of that that you can buy uh, from our yeah. e-store. If you don't have academic uh, access to an academic library, it was it was published back in the 90s in the philosophy journal, The Monist. Uh, but you can get a copy from our site at bit.ly slash life-based ethics. Should we go to the, to the next objection? Yeah, I think what we should about talk about uh, free will. Yeah. Free will. Yes, so <clears throat> this objection comes from a Reddit poster whose handle is CoulterDev. Uh, I hope I'm saying that correctly to give him his or her his credit. <clears throat> so CoulterDev uh, asks, as far as I understand, objectivism validates free will introspectively. It points out that some states of consciousness are automatic, while others, such as thinking, don't come up to you out of the blue. If you don't will them, they wouldn't come. However, the brain operates according to mechanical laws, which are impervious to anyone's will. If there is indeed free will, scientists are unable to explain where to find it in the brain. So the objection is the existence of free will has not been integrated with the scientific view of the brain. So just to start again, I want to say what makes this a good or persuasive objection. So one is, again, uh, just like Sean, Coulter is, or Coulter Dev is concerned with accurately representing the objectivist position. This isn't a straw man. This isn't an unreasonable um, uh, misunderstanding. It's a, it's a plausible um, understanding of the objectivist position. He or they are trying to integrate the objectivist theory with other things they know are, uh, they know in this case, the, what they know or think they know about the brain science or the state of the science uh, and, and some physics, and they're concerned that they can't integrate the two. So they have the objectivist claim and then they have some scientific claims and they, they should integrate, but they don't. So, And <clears throat> um, Coulter is aware of how objectivism would address some of this um, in, in part of the, his uh, post. We didn't read his whole post. He's aware of uh, how objectivism would address some of the criticisms and he raises, uh, they raise further questions. And finally, the target of the criticism is uh, an essential component of Rand's system. So uh, for those of you who are more familiar with the system, you'll realize that her claim is that 
epistemology, ethics, social and political theory, all of this is, um, all what philosophy is doing is giving us guidance in these areas and it doesn't really make too much sense to give guidance if you're de a deterministic mechanical system. So there's a, if there's no free will, there is a kind of incoherence, there's an incoherence in everything objectivism is trying to do posterior to claims about human nature. Um, so it's it's not a nitpicky objection. It's it's a essential uh, uh, point in Rand's system. So that's those are the you know the most valuable to think about in evaluating a whole philosophical system. Uh, so what do we want to say about this? Well, there's a few things to say. <clears throat> so first on the brain science um, point, Kulturdev says the brain operates according to mechanical laws, which are impervious to anyone's will. Now, it's important to note that this is precisely what objectivism is disputing. So <clears throat> we're, we're saying that acts of will have physical effects on the brain. I think there's, if you're a um, advocate of real honest to goodness free will, there's, there's no avoiding an implication of your view. Um, so that's not yet an objective uh, objection it's just a, a statement of what we're saying and you might find that highly implausible but finding it highly implausible isn't yet an objection now <clears throat> Coulter, I, I do take issue with your summary of the state of brain science so at present measurements of living brains don't really have the resolution where they can even measure something about micro mechanisms in, in in a living actually thinking brain um what, what we have at, at or what they have at best are these um use of fmri uh um observations which are like whole brain reason regions um you can see them active in a thinking brain and and make measurements at that level but probably whatever is going on um when we're talking about the physical components of thinking and choosing um, that's not going on at the level of like, you know, brain regions of this size, they're, they're going on at, at some kind of micro level at the cellular or, or molecular level, or maybe small. So um, <clears throat> I just don't think that's, that's uh, a fair summary of, of the state of the, of our knowledge of that particular point. So now, the most important issue that you raise, though, is the issue of introspection. And I think this is really every defense and criticism of uh, robust free will needs to grapple with this. So objectivism's claim is not that introspection provides some evidence that we have free will there really isn't with the in the objectivist view there isn't an issue of um, accumulating evidence up and then concluding from all the different sources of evidence that you have free will it's objectivism's claiming the existence of free will the free will is an unassailable datum it's like seeing something with your eyes except internally um, <clears throat> if so so what's the objectivist view well the objectivist view is if your brain science says that there is or it, it, that there isn't or can't be free will, it's wrong. Evidence is always prior to theory and free will, according to the objectivist view, has the status as unassailable evidence. Um, if your phys 
Physics says there isn't or can't be free will. It's wrong for the same exact reason. Sci any scientific theory which contradicts the facts is wrong. And our view is that the existence of free will is a fact. Now, obviously, that's a controversial claim. Um, <clears throat> but that means that the debate about free will is really going to hinge on whether or not what objectivism or objectivists are saying about that issue of introspection is right or not. Can you introspect something like the existence of free will is, is really the question. Now, on the question as to the integration of philosophy and science, since this has come up twice now, um, <clears throat> I just want to point out that it's actually not uncommon that we know things like two, two related things that we can't yet integrate. So, for example, there's the theory of evolution by natural selection that we associate with Darwin or associate with that Darwin discovered. And then there's also the theory of genetics discovered by Mendel. It's a theory about how um, uh, offspring inherit different traits from their parents. And it was many decades after this discovery of both until they were integrated into a consistent scientific picture. So the fact that no one knows how to integrate two true claims about the world yet doesn't mean that either one of them is is not true. It's just an, it's just a Un, un, unknown, um, you know, it's the, the frontiers of knowledge, knowing that we there's something there to know that we don't yet know. Sometimes the failure to integrate just reveals a lack of knowledge, not that one of the two in, integrated, in, um, potentially integratable things is false. Um, <clears throat> now, if you really have philosophical um, knowledge, it's the case that it's science and not philosophy which will have to budge and i think that's that's doubly true in um in in this case um free will is something we know as a uh, self-evident reality um if physics say cannot accommodate free will then there's something physics doesn't yet know um so the our view is that the existence of free will is a more basic fact than any scientific theory. Um, that's, I think, all I want to say for now. Ben, I think you had a few comments you wanted to make. Yeah. yeah, just to supplement the point you were making about the integration of science and uh, philosophy, I think, I think you're quite right that uh, there's a lot we don't know about how free will works about where it comes from about what explains it and to that extent yeah it hasn't been integrated with our knowledge of how the brain works and how uh the the uh the neurobiology uh, of our of the human being works but on another level there is a way in which free will is uh integrated with with science and it's it's a way that i think is importantly deep a way in which the fact of free will is tightly integrated with just the fact that there is such a thing as science and that science is recognized for good reason as something that's good and rational that gives us knowledge you know one of the things that's good about objections like this is that it's taking for granted that science is a good thing and that we should we should work to 
uh, understand its findings and uh, work to integrate them with the rest of the things that we know. But if you think that's a good thing to do, if you think that its findings are things that we should take seriously, if you think that there is such a thing as a scientific method uh, that you should follow when you are trying to formulate a certain view of the world, well, that's because you have implicitly already adopted the idea that there are certain norms of rational thinking that you should follow, that there are right and wrong ways of figuring out what's true, uh, that they differ from various irrational ways of trying to figure out what's true, that you can't just believe any old thing that you like, that you have to use a, some kind of method in your thinking to figure out what's true, what's false, that there is a value therefore to a kind of objectivity uh, as opposed to blind prejudice, where you do just believe whatever you want with, without regard to any kind of method. Well, if you accept that idea, which is what it is to accept the importance, not just of science, um, but of rationality, well, what you're implicitly assuming here is that there are certain ways you should, yes, wait for it, choose to use your mind, as opposed to other ways that are bad ways of choosing to use your mind, that you face a real alternative in the way that you use your mind, that people who uh, choose to use rational objective methods are being are making a rational choice, that those other people who believe whatever they want to without scientific grounding are making an irrational choice. They really shouldn't choose to use their minds that way. They shouldn't choose to believe things groundlessly, non-objectively. They really ought to do better than that. And don't you see then that what you're already assuming when you're adopting these kinds of scientific norms is you're assuming the fact of free will. Um, and that's especially because of the fact that in the objectivist theory, what free will fundamentally is, is precisely that. It's the, it's the choice to think or not to think, the choice to use the best of your abilities to figure out what's true as opposed to drifting or evading past the fact, uh, the facts of the world. So this is an example of uh, what, they, what they call reaffirmation through denial, where even in order to deny some uh, fact that's taken as a datum, you have to assume it. And while you can't prove that you have free will in, in the way that uh, I think the objection is assuming when it talks about getting evidence for it, you can't because it's this unassailable datum that you've been talking about, Mike. It does take a little bit of work to show that it is this unassailable datum. And one of the ways that you do that is by showing how uh, even in order to deny it, say by citing some alleged scientific finding, you have to assume it. And in fact, just using the scientific method and thinking that it's something that uh, is a good thing to rely on, you are assuming that other people should choose the things you're choosing, that some people who don't shouldn't choose, they should, could they could have done better, uh, uh, that they faced a real alternative, which they made the wrong choice about. So uh, that's, that's an important respect in which the fact of free will, I think, is tightly integrated with the, the value of the scientific method, that the value of the scientific method presupposes the fact of free will. And if it didn't, um, there wouldn't be a method worth recommending that people actually choose. Uh, this is a point that, that I talk about in a resource that we want to recommend. This is an article that I wrote uh, a few years ago called Why Champions of Science and Reason Need Free Will. Uh, in addition to making this point about the norms of the scientific method, another thing that I do is talk about some of the best uh, brain science that we do have that's that's relevant seemingly to the question of free will. Here I talk about uh, experiments in neuroscience called the Lebet experiments, which some people think show show we don't have free will. We don't. I analyze those those uh, the findings of those experiments and show that they don't in any way contradict uh, free will for details 
check out the article. Uh, also, I want to recommend to you uh, a talk by ARI senior fellow Ankar Gatte, Seize the Reins of Your Mind, the Objectivist Theory of Free Will. That's on our YouTube channel, bit.ly slash seize hyphen reins. Uh, my article is on the New Ideal website. If you go to bit.ly slash champions hyphen free will, it'll take you to that directly. Uh, Ankar's talk is one that uh, also examines some claims from people like Sam Harris, who claim that the science contradicts free will. Often uh, what the arguments they make reveal is that uh, they don't quite understand what the concept of free will actually is. Uh, and it's something I talk about in my article as well. Uh, but that's all I have on that topic. Mike, did you want to add anything before we go to the, the next big objection? It sounds like you're you're muted for a second there, Mike. So I didn't I didn't hear what you said. Oh, um, I should be unmuted. Uh, I think we should okay, move on to you. the next. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, okay. So the next okay. uh, objection is one that we got also from Reddit. We got a lot of good objections on Reddit. Uh, this one comes from Gabe, and Gabe says one thing I've always struggled with is understanding that if life is the standard of value. Where does life get its value? It's not intrinsically valuable, but the concept of value is dependent on first accepting life as a value. Isn't this circular? Uh, is it a subjective choice to choose to value life? Is it maybe pre-moral? Even rationality has its value from the original value of life. So can we even use rationality to determine the value of life? Uh, and we're summing this one up as does the choice to live make the objectivist ethic arbitrary? So Mike, I think you wanted to lead off by commenting on this one. Yeah. <clears throat> so again, let's start just reviewing what, what makes this a persuasive objective. This, this is actually my favorite uh, objection to objectivism. If I, if one one of mine too. I have such a thing. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> he's, Gabe is thinking through the implications of a fundamental claim of objectivism that is the foundations of its ethics. Again, it's nitpicky. It's very, um, very deep objection. He accurately describes the position that moral obligation is based in choice. Um, that's an important and controversial uh, thesis of objectivism. And he's trying to integrate the fundamental choice with other claims Rand makes about the nature of value. So she thinks value is objective, objective not arbitrary, not subjective. Uh, and he can't integrate the two in a way that doesn't result in a contradiction. So it's all the makings of a strong, uh, strong philosophical objection. So just before I get into the meat of it, I just wanted to make a small point, Gabe, about something you wrote. So, so the concept of value is dependent on first accepting uh, life as the value. So that's not I, I don't think that's an accurate way uh, of putting the point the relationship between life and value is posterior to the question of choice so the choice to live in the objectivist ethics is very much about um chosen obligations um which is distinct from just the question of the relationship between life and value which ben talked about this earlier so it's um uh, i think we, we've already said um, as much as we need to about that point, but that's, it's an important point to um, to recognize that it's only in the human context where part of what makes a thing valuable is that it's chosen. So <clears throat> I 
we want to start our, our response just by restating the objection. Um, I, I think this is, as I said, it's my favorite objection. It's a good objection. And I think it's a natural objection too. I had a friend in high school raise this to me. So it's, it's something that a, a, an intelligent um, person learning object, object, object could, would like come up with on their own. But it, I think it also is a little, especially when there's a claim that there's something circular about it, there, it can be a little tricky to follow. So how I understand the objection is that it, it's noted according to objectivism, moral obligation does rest on a choice. It's also noting that choice needs some rational basis or a reason behind it to be um, justified or objective or, or non-arbitrary, non-subjective. So when you give a reason to, um, to uh, when you explain, when a person, why did you lie to me? They expect some kind of justification if you're there for like, I didn't want to hurt your feelings or, you know, that, that some reason behind it. If they just say, if you just say, I felt, I felt like it, that makes the choice arbitrary. I had no reason at all. It was just a lark. So we take it that um, if we're saying a choice is the right choice um, or a reasonable choice, there must be some kind of rational motivation behind it. Um, <clears throat> and then thinking about the fundamental choice, though, what could be the reason behind the fundamental choice to live, the choice behind all other reasons or motivations. If I say the choice to live is uh, the reason behind the choice to live is life itself, it's, you know, I'm justifying life by appealing to life. That's the, that's the circularity that's alleged to be here. On the other hand, if I say a reason to, to choose life is something else, some other thing like pleasure, then life's not the standard anymore. So we've just abandoned the objectivist position. It's a, um, so the objection really is to the it, the objection is really to the foundation of ethics resting on a choice. On a choice. So it's um, <clears throat> now what to say about this? Well, why think that to choose something is arbitrary, subjective, baseless? Well, so again, it, it's not exactly choosing per se that makes something ar arbitrary, but choosing without reason. Um, and then if we think just for a minute, what is it to give a reason? Well, to give a reason is uh, to choose is to appeal to something within the realm of the living. So, um, if you, uh, are choosing, uh, what to have for lunch, you appeal to, uh, your hunger, your nutritional requirements, some. Um, pleasure you take in one meal versus another. These are all life-based justifications for the choice. Um, in the objectivist view, the very concept of giving a reason for or justification for a choice presupposes that you already value something about life, some life itself or some part of life. So to ask for a reason to choose to live is to steal the concept of reason. That is, you're appealing to life to bring life into question. Um, and I think that's the 
basic uh, um, problem with the objection. Uh, ben, I think you wanted to elaborate a little bit. I mean, yeah, there's a few things to say here. Uh, I mean, this is one of those kinds of uh, questions that comes up all over philosophy uh, that involve uh, regresses of justification or regresses of explanation. And uh, there can't be infinite regresses. There can't be uh, infinities, infinities of any kind, let alone of justifications or explanations. Uh, how is it that these typically get uh, stopped in a in a sensible way well i mean here's a simple example uh if you build something uh you it has to have a foundation it has to have something underneath it that keeps it up right well okay if i build a house uh what keeps it up the foundation what keeps up the foundation the ground what keeps up that ground uh you know some layers of rock beneath it etc you can go on for a while but at a certain point you have to uh stop and accept that uh, the whole earth doesn't need to be kept up, uh, that that's, uh, the earth hangs in the air, in effect. Now, of course, it's also going around the sun, but that's a different kind of thing. So there's a, there are certain conditions that set the context for the applicability of new kinds of questions. Uh, what holds up the X uh, has a certain set of presuppositions that have to hold for there to even be things that hold up other things, like there need to be planets of a certain size that have a gravitational attraction, etc. So uh, the same is true in all kinds of different questions in, in philosophy. And uh, another place where we see this outside of ethics and philosophy is in epistemology. And you can also ask questions like, why should I go by reason at all? Why should I have reasons for the things that I believe? Well, that amounts to asking for a reason uh, to go by reason, which is another example of this kind of reaffirmation through denial, where you, in order to deny something, you even have to maintain it. And uh, so the fact that you're already asking a question, why should I do this? Why should, what's the reason for reason presupposes you've already accepted the value of it. And there's something uh, similar going on in asking questions about why should I choose to live? That's especially because of the fact that in, in objectivist philosophy, the choice to live, which is the choice that grounds ethics, that, that is the ultimate justification for all the values and virtues that objectivist uh, ethics upholds. Uh, at the end of the day, ultimately, in objectivism is no different from the choice to think, the same choice we were talking about before when we were talking about free will, the choice to be rational, the choice to accept the need for reason, the choice to engage the faculty of reason in the first place and to want to know what's actually true. Uh, to choose to live is to choose to live as the kind of being you are, which is a rational being. It's to choose to live means to accept the place where you live. It means to accept the realm of reality, which means accept what it is that uh, your rationality requires in order to know things, accept the faculty of reason. Um, so this is a question that has been asked many times before. One place where it's answered is uh, in Dr. Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectivism and the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. He takes on more or less directly the kind of question that Gabe is asking. And we, I just wanted to put up on screen the, uh, the, the short paragraph where he gives his answer. And I think this summarizes a number of the things both Mike and I have been saying. Uh, this is uh, page 248 of uh, Objectivism, Philosophy of Ayn Rand, or OPAR as we call it. 
Peikoff writes, a primary choice does not mean an arbitrary, whimsical, or groundless choice. There are grounds for a certain primary choice, and those grounds are reality, all of it. The choice to live, as we have seen, is the choice to accept the realm of reality. This choice is not only not arbitrary, it is the precondition of criticizing the arbitrary. It is the base of reason. Um, I also mentioned that uh, one other resource you can take a look at where this uh, kind of question and where the regress objection generally to the idea of justifying the choice to live is explored in even greater detail is an essay by the philosopher Daryl Wright, which appears in the Ayn Rand Society Philosophical Studies, Volume 1, called Metaethics, Egoism, and Virtue, Studies in Ayn Rand's Normative Theory. Uh, this is, I think, the first or the second chapter in the book. It's called Reasoning About Ends. Uh, you can get this on Amazon at the link that we display there. Otherwise, just look up uh, Metaethics, Egoism, and Virtue. It's really uh, deep and rich essay by Dr. Wright on this very topic that I think goes into a lot more considerations that we didn't have time to talk about today. So Gabe, if you're uh, perplexed by this objection, I definitely recommend uh, getting a copy of that book, seeing what Daryl has to say about it. Mike, do you think we have time to do our last objection? It'll take us over the hour, but I think if we stick to- I think, we should, do the, I think we should do the last one, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, so uh, so let's... this last, this last objection uh, also comes from Gabe, uh, and it's not a single devastating uh, objection, I think, like the, the other ones that we looked at, where there was just a single point that like raised a critical question about a central element of the philosophy. Uh, rather, it is a certain style of objection, a certain methodology that we want to talk about. Uh, a methodology you can plug into all kinds of ways of criticizing all kinds of points of this philosophy and as it turns out really any other philosophy uh, and uh, we're summarizing this as the uh, the the analytic philosophy counterexample method and a really good place to look for uh, analytic uh, philosophical counterexample after counterexample is an essay that Gabe uh, pointed us to in his submission, uh, an essay that I think both Mike and I have, have read uh, many times, a long time ago, uh, by a philosopher at University of Colorado named Michael Humer. Uh, there's actually a couple of essays Michael Humer has written criticizing objectivism. Uh, we're going to be looking in particular at one where he's criticizing a number of points from the objectivist ethics, including some of the points that we've talked about today. And uh, just to set up this objection in order to analyze it, um, we, we really need to start by mentioning the points from Ayn Rand that he's criticizing. And so uh, I'm just going to read this out loud. It's not on the screen, but I think you can follow along. It refers to some of the same things we were talking about in that first objection that we talked about, Ayn Rand's argument for life is the standard of value. Uh, so here's the way humor summarizes a certain uh, portion of Rand's argument. And he, he numbers his premises and he turns it into a kind of deductive argument. One, value is agent relative. Things can only be valuable for particular entities. Two, something's valuable to an entity only if the entity faces alternatives. Three, no non-living things face any alternatives. Therefore, values exist only for living things. Now, I think there, were, there are probably things we could quibble about with regard to how good of a reconstruction that is of a certain portion of her argument, but we'll leave that for another day. 
uh, main thing we want to focus on is the way humor responds to that argument. Uh, now, he, he lists all kinds of premises for this argument. And in his essay, he lists numerous objections to each premise. And uh, we can't go through all of them. Um, but what we want to talk about m mostly is the kind of methodology that he uses in giving his objections. And I just want to give you a flavor of that methodology by just reading for you um, uh, three or four of the different objections he, he mentions just to one of those premises. In this case, uh, premise three, that no non-living things face any alternatives. Here's what Humor uh, says about that. He says, premise three seems to be false. Rand claimed that living things face an alternative of existing or not existing, but that non-living things do not. I can think of five interpretations of this, but all of them make it false. First, it's not true that non-living things can't be destroyed. I once saw a house destroyed by flames, for example. Okay. Second, if it is true, uh, second, it is true that the matter of which non-living things are composed can't be destroyed, but this is equally true of living things. Okay. Third, it's not true that a non-living thing's continued existence never depends on its activities. If my computer ceases to function properly, that this may cause me to destroy it. Fourth. Fourth, it is not true that the positive action is, is never required to preserve a non-living thing's existence. A cloud, for instance, must absorb more water in order to continue to exist. So he's just got counterexample like after counterexample like this in response to each of uh, the premises. And you know, they're, they're, they're clever counterexamples. Uh, in addition to that, I'll just mention a few other things about this uh, method of raising objections that uh, it makes it persuasive, at least to a certain type of, of thinker. Um, his essay does, I, I mean, first of all, he just gives so many, gives so many objections like this to every single premise. It, it looks impressive that there are so many flaws. It makes it look like there's really something terribly wrong with his argument. Uh, and so if you find this style of objection powerful, it totally destroys every single premise of the argument. And I think that what humor is doing here is representative of a fairly standard kind of methodology in what they call today analytic philosophy. That is the Anglo-American philosophy that is popular in, I think, most philosophy departments in, in America and in Western Europe. Uh, one thing I will give credit for, humor, I'll give credit to humor here for, is using the same methodology that he sees uh, as worthy of deploying against every other philosopher that he tries to refute. I mean, he's treating Rand's view here as uh, ordinary high-powered philosophy that deserves the same kind of criticism that he deploys against all his other colleagues. Uh, if you read Robert Nozick's article on the Randian argument, I think he does something similar here. And I mean, one thing that's good about analytic philosophers, as opposed to, let's say, what they call the continental philosophers, is that they are very concerned with a certain kind of logic and rigor. They want each premise in an argument to be as solid and well-known as possible. And if there are solid objections to it, well, we don't know that it's true. And so the, the argument isn't sound. And they're also even right that, uh, yeah, if you make a general claim, all S is P, and you find one S, uh, that really is not P, then you've, you've definitely refuted that universal claim. Um, frankly, I, I, wish, I wish we had uh, more criticisms of objectivism like the one that, that humor has given us. The, 
if, if more philosophers took her philosophy seriously and gave the kinds of criticisms that they give of other philosophies, we, we would have many more productive conversations and uh, we'd be, I think, eventually explaining to them how to answer those objections. And you know, with enemies like this, who needs friends? But <laughs> having, having um, given what credit there is to give, there is something deeply wrong with this methodology, this style of giving counterexample objections. And just to give you, I mean, there's, there's a lot that we could say about this, but just to give you a, a sense of what I think is wrong with it. If I say horses have four legs and someone says, look, I've found a mutant horse who was only born with three, or I found a horse who was injured and had to have his uh, leg amputated. Okay, like this uh, smart aleck has, has refuted something about what I've said. He's refuted the claim that all horses have four legs. If we mean by that every single thing that we classify as a horse on earth has a certain number of appendages. But there is still something importantly true, isn't there, about the generalization that, that horses have legs have four legs, that when we're saying that, what we probably mean to be talking about is what it means to be a normal horse, uh, what it means to be a horse that's functioning properly, uh, the kind of horse that is able to live in a normal earthbound environment. Um, and what I think this brings out is that generalizations, not all generalizations are just accidental conjunctions of facts. Uh, like uh, all the boxes, all of the screws in this box I've collected of screws, they're all made of metal. Like, ooh, here's a screw that's made of wood. No, uh, some generalizations, the most important ones, the, one that, the ones that form the principles of our sciences, uh, are ones that are bound together by certain kinds of important causal connections. And yeah, uh, you can find horses with three legs, but you know, if, if the normal kind of horse didn't have four legs, there would be no three-legged horses that you know, could be the products of mutation or accident because there's something about having four legs that makes them be a stable kind of species that can survive and reproduce and live, going back to our uh, previous discussion. Um, so uh, there's, uh, there's something wrong with the, the way of uh, giving counterexamples that Hume is using here. And likewise, if you, if you look at the generalization that he's trying to refute, the idea that there are no non-living things that need to act to remain in existence, you have to remember there's something that is meant by that generalization as well. And, and it's not, I think, what he's trying to refute with his counterexample. You have to understand that claim to mean uh, that, that uh, there's an important difference between the way living creatures act and remain in existence and the way everything else does. And if you can't see the big observable difference between uh, the causality that's involved in the maintenance of the life of a cat and the causality of the maintenance in the existence of a cloud, well, there's, you're, you're missing something. You're, you're playing with words. You're not looking at these important factual differences. There's a lot more to say about that, how it applies to that particular uh, principle that he's trying to refute. And Mike, I think you wanted to say more about that. Yeah, <clears throat> I think there's, so in Rand's formulations, there's two important uh, qualifiers that I think if you attend to, it's easy to see what's going on with humor's counterexample. So the first is that she's describing life as a process. So when we're talking about life and living things, 
needing to act to maintain themselves and facing destruction. It's not just a, um, uh, if the example is a cat, it's not just this fluffy body. It's a fluffy body doing certain things. Like a process is an ongoing, continuous set of actions with a certain aim or goal. Um, <clears throat> and she says that living things face an alternative. I think you need to like underline face. That is, they do things relevant to this alternative is they're they're facing it versus clouds not facing anything clouds don't do anything to cause effects on themselves they might accidentally do something that results in a change to their cloudiness um, but it's not a uh, it's not as if they're engaged in any kind of systematic process which always or, or regularly even results in some change to their cloudiness. So <clears throat> when she's talking, when Rand's talking about living things facing an alternative, she's not saying non-living things can't be destroyed. She's saying that they're not doing things. They're not engaged in a process which is causally related to their dis destruction or continued existence. So just think about a house. A house is not engaged in any kind of process at all. It's just sitting there. A house is not doing anything to make itself stay a house. Cats do things to make themselves stay cats. Um, clouds don't absorb water. Water accumulates within clouds versus plants. Plants do things to accumulate water. Their roots grow out farther and deeper and finer and you know spongier to in order to observe to increase their surface area um so just if you just keep in mind that what we're talking about is entities engaged in a particular kind of process why would you think about clouds or they're not relevant at all um to what she's uh talking about now <clears throat> the the just the difference in method between the way Ben and I were talking about this and the way humor is, he's very focused on a particular word destruction that she uses and then ignoring the context in which she uses the word destruction. So context is the context of certain natural things engaged in certain processes that maintain the, the their bodily integrity and the continuation of that process. That's the context. The context is the living things. Um, but, you know, destruction. I mean, a house can get blown up or well, it's catch on fire and it's destroyed. Um, and that's how he's constructing counterexamples. Now, if you were thinking about the the particular, the, the relevant like facts of living things and what um, you might, you know, there could be relevant um, examples to think up of and try to use a counterexample. Some uh, immortal living organism. If if we found something, they say, "What do what do we make of that?" Like at least that's on topic. Um, <clears throat> so we're focusing on the nature of the process uh, process Rand's describing by looking at examples of things that are engaged in that process and how does it look in this case versus that case. Plants do this, cats do that, clouds don't do that. And Rand is concerned with how we should conceptualize the difference between living and non-living things. We need certain concepts to understand this. 
We need a concept to understand what it is that living things act towards and what causal relevance um, the obtainment of those things has towards the continuation of their lives. And that's what she's calling a value or a good. Um, that's what she's doing in reaching the conclusion that the concept of life only has validity in the context of the needs of the living organism. And it, I, I, you know, we could have a meta debate over which methodology is superior, but it's, it's clear that there is a methodological difference. And I think it's when you say it out loud, I think it becomes a little clear, which is the more plausible methodology and which is the more questionable one. Um, but that's a that's a, a further level of objection where you could object to the philosophy's method. So you want to end, let me, let end me, on uh, a final point. Go to the, <laughs> let me say one more thing about the cloud counterexample because I, I just came up with a, a a much better cloud counterexample. Although then I'll say something about whether it really is one. I mean, here's I think the thing that that Rand is talking about. Suppose that you had a, a cloud that was formed of water vapor, but um, Whenever it approached a desert where it might evaporate, it, it, it scooted out of the way. It tried to avoid the desert. Whenever it got close to a, a, a mountain that it might bump up against and therefore cause there to be, you know, just dew, it, it scoots away from the mountain. And it, in the meantime, you see all the clouds moving toward, let's say, the ocean where the, the water is going to evaporate. Maybe some of the clouds even shoot lightning down into the ocean to cause some of that water to evaporate so that they can get more clouds. So there's this organized behavior that they're engaging in in order to seek out the water and to avoid the things that suck their water dry um, then you'd have a uh the kind of thing i think that rand is talking about and it, it might look like a counterexample. except i think that in that kind of case what you'd have is a living cloud um in which case yeah. it wouldn't any longer be a counterexample. and you know maybe on some yeah. planet far off in the galaxy there are creatures made of something very different from the kind of carbon matter, matter that we're used to that, you know, are made of silicon or whatever, we wouldn't recognize them as living, but they engage in the kind of living processes that Rand is talking about. In that case, they would actually be living and they would, they would, they would uh, have certain things that they required for their existence as well. Uh, I think that is there the, are, the, the, the point that I mean, there are, there are, to, to see. There are kind of borderline-ish cases. I, I don't know if there's resolution to this yet, but there at least was a debate, is a virus a living thing or not? Um, there are, uh, I think prions are a kind of sort of infectious agent that's not a living thing. It's a misfolded protein that kind of gets spread around. So there are border, there are real borderline cases you might um, want to think about. And how do, how would, are these borderline cases relevant to anything Rand's saying and in what way and how would you process them? And, um, but if you're that's that those only come up to you if you're thinking about what are the processes involved and how are they different from living things versus focusing on a word like destruction yeah. and seeing that you can smash a statue and regardless of what borderline cases there may be which might be difficult to resolve it doesn't do anything to deny the very real and big difference between the cat and the plant on um, the one yeah. hand and the rock yeah. on the other and that it only makes sense to talk about values for the first not for the second Okay, I think, uh, yeah, I think we, we got through those four in a decent amount of time. So that was, that was fun. I, I, I suspect we haven't fully satisfied everybody who would make these objections, but I think we've at least given uh, a flavor of how we ourselves think about them and how we process them over the years. 
Uh, certainly, I think most of these objections, both you and I, Mike, have been thinking about for a long time. Uh, but we should wrap up and we should uh, share some uh, closing announcements. First is a reminder of the thing that I started with, which is uh, those reading groups. If you are fascinated by some of the kinds of philosophical questions we've argued about, debated about today, want to see what these objections are objections to, the nonfiction philosophic readings where Ayn Rand gives her arguments that people are making objections to, well, uh, signing up for one of ARI's reading groups is a great way to do it. Uh, these are reading groups that are led by one of our junior fellows, though they're not, uh, they're not there to teach or to argue with you. They're there to just facilitate discussion, uh, open discussion where you can talk about whatever you want with your peers uh, of uh, you know, younger people. So uh, check out bit.ly slash reading group 0323 to find out more about how you can sign up. Uh, and I mentioned earlier that reading groups for many of the people who participate in them are often a stepping stone to registering for classes in the Ayn Rand University. And I want to mention that right now we are between quarters at the ARU. We're between quarter two and quarter three. We have a new raft of courses starting in April, uh, some that are one quarter long, some that are two quarters long going into the summer. Uh, if you've not considered before uh, signing up to take classes at the Ayn Rand University, uh, it's not too late to do that. Uh, we have graded students. We have auditors. The graded students are typically uh, admitted at the beginning of the year, though I think we still accept late in the year admissions. And we certainly accept auditors uh, just about any time of year. If you want to find out more about the Ayn Rand University, you can go to bit.ly slash ARU sign up uh, to find out more about what programs we offer and how you yourself can become registered either as a graded student or as an auditor. Uh, would also like to remind people about next week's show. The uh, topic that I that I think we're going to do is libertarians versus the USA. Uh, this is going to be hosted by uh, junior fellows uh, Zimut Gowan and uh, Nikos uh, Sitirkopoulos. Uh, you'll see them next week. I can't remember actually which day of the week this is going to be happening. Our default day is on Friday, but sometimes it's earlier. So stay tuned for more information from ARI about when that's going to happen. I'll also mention, if you enjoyed watching this podcast uh, and you're watching on YouTube, for instance, please like the episode, please comment on it, please share the episode uh, after, uh, after the fact, especially if you're watching the recording, it helps if you leave comments. This helps us optimize the algorithm so that more and more people can uh, find, uh, find out about New Idea Live and hear our message. Uh, consider please doing the same thing if you're watching on Facebook. And if you have any questions about what we talked about on today's episode, if you have suggestions for future episodes, maybe new objections that you'd like us to answer in a future objections episode, please send these to newideal.einrand.org. Uh, we read all of the emails that come into this address. We answer many of them. I confess I'm a little behind answering them. So if some of you uh, have written recently, uh, I owe you an email. Don't worry, it's going to come eventually. Uh, but uh, we do read them all one way or the other. We thank you very much for the submissions that you gave us today. Uh, some of these uh, greatest objection, objections to objectivism. Thank you for sending them to us. I think it's made for an interesting episode. Thanks, Mike, for helping uh, me grapple with these uh, very challenging objections today. And uh, we will see you all <coughs> next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, Leave us a review, share with a friend, 
and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.